Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 11, The Chain of Happiness. As Abraham Lincoln told the story, an itinerant quack preacher once asked Jesse Dubow, a friend of Lincoln's who served as Illinois State Auditor, for permission to deliver a private lecture in the chamber of the Illinois House of Representatives. Dubow asked the preacher the subject of his talk. He said, the second coming of Christ. Nonsense, Dubow replied. If Christ had been to Springfield once and got away, he'd be damned clear of coming again. Whether or not a theophany awaited Springfield, pedestrians might have prayed for divine intervention as they struggled to walk through the city. Its Arcadian name notwithstanding, what defined Springfield was mud. Black and loamy, it flowed up from the unpaved streets and onto the sidewalks trash and animal droppings mixed in the sludge. The hogs set loose to control the litter left their own waste behind and dug out holes in the streets. One woman said that no one, quote, can know the definition of mud until they come to Springfield. I think scrapers and mats must be fast-selling items here. As late as 1881, when at least some of the streets in Springfield had been paved, a history of Sangamon County had to acknowledge the mire even as it praised the air and the churches. It said, quote, Like other cities in central Illinois, and almost throughout the entire state, in the early spring and in open winters, it is quite muddy, the mud frequently being an embargo to all travel. Springfield has often been condemned by the stranger for the mud upon her streets, while at the same time, it was no worse than hundreds of other places in the state, and much better than many. Of one thing it is quite evident, the cities of Illinois will always be muddy, if not paved. Lincoln rode into this semi-medieval scene on April 15, 1837. He might have steered his borrowed horse around pigs and sinkholes as he gazed at a few brick buildings, like the courthouse in the town square, as well as some frame houses and more than a few log cabins. Springfield was about 20 years old and had a population of 1,300 people. Small by today's standards, It was the largest city Lincoln had ever lived in, and in his 24 years in Springfield, its population would double every decade. Many residents expected the arrival of the state capitol to expand the city further, and a lot of land speculation was taking place. The city also had a number of stores and hotels, along with a healthy number of professionals. Lincoln entered the city with his possessions in two saddlebags and several troubles on his mind. He was about to try his hand at the law, a profession that tended to draw far more educated men than he, and gave no guarantees of success. The historian Brian Dirk writes that many aspiring attorneys had backup plans if their legal careers didn't work out. But Lincoln had no escape route, and nothing to hold on to if he sank. His financial troubles continued to dog him. Lincoln told a friend, William Butler, that he spent all of his legislative salary before arriving in Springfield, likely to service debt from the Berry and Lincoln failure. As Butler remembered, Lincoln said, quote, I am in debt, and I have nothing to pay the debt with, and no way to make any money. I don't know what to do. 
And as we'll soon see, Lincoln had a woman on his mind. When he pulled in front of a general store, Lincoln tied his horse to a hitching post and walked in to purchase some personal furniture and office items. Joshua Speed, one of the owners of the store, walked with Lincoln as he looked at the items and added up the cost. It came to $17, about $381 in today's money. Speed recalled Lincoln saying, quote, It is probably cheap enough, but I want to say that as cheap as it is, I have not the money to pay. But if you will credit me until Christmas, and my experiment as a lawyer is a success, I will pay you then. If I fail in that, I probably never will be able to pay you. Watching this tall and ungainly young man at his counter, Speed said he had, quote, never seen a sadder face. He continued, quote, I said to him, the contraction of so small a debt seems to affect you so deeply, I think I can suggest a plan by which you will be able to attain your end without incurring my debt. I have a very large room and a very large double bed in it that you are perfectly welcome to share with me if you choose. Where is your room? asked he. Upstairs, said I, pointing to the stairs leading from my store to the room. Without saying a word, he took his saddlebags on his arm, went upstairs, set them down on the floor, came down again, and with a face beaming with pleasure and smiles, exclaimed, Well, Speed, I'm moved. This story is famous in Lincoln literature. Less well-known is that at the same time, William Butler took Lincoln's clothes from his saddlebags, brought them to his wife to be washed, and invited Lincoln to take his meals with him. Both Speed and Butler provided room and board to Lincoln for years, apparently without charging him. It was wonderfully generous. But it's also puzzling. The historian Michael Burlingame plausibly suggests Butler was grateful for Lincoln's efforts in moving the capital to Springfield. Speed knew Lincoln by sight. He heard him speak in Springfield the year before and was a witness to Lincoln's skinning of George Forquer. But Speed was not on intimate terms with Lincoln before 1837. So, why did they cover the living expenses for a man they barely knew? One answer was Lincoln's gloom. Even as it tortured him, it drew people close. Lincoln was, of course, a great storyteller, and that was part of his charisma. But the sadness that hung on him like a coat created a strange aura around Lincoln that made people want to cheer him up. William Herndon said Lincoln was treated like a pet. He wrote, quote, I have often and often heard a man say, that man is a man of sorrow, and I really feel for him. I sympathize with him. This sadness on the part of Mr. Lincoln and sympathy on the part of the observer were a heart's magnetic tie between the two. This result gave Lincoln power over men. Speed's general store, like other establishments of its kind, was a community space. Lincoln forged many long-standing relationships speaking with people around the fire in the back of the store. Stephen Douglas, his great rival, spent time there. Herndon worked as a clerk in the store and slept in the same room as Lincoln for a time. But his closest relationship was with Speed, with whom Lincoln would enjoy an unusual level of emotional intimacy. About five years younger than his bunkmate, Speed was a handsome and slightly nervous man who, like so many other important people in Lincoln's life, came from a wealthy Kentucky family, a family that owned slaves, which would divide the men in later years. 
Speed had gone to college for a time, but after an illness, he dropped out and went into business. After working as a clerk in Louisville, Speed moved to Springfield, becoming a partner in the general store, which sold everything from food and medicine to books and bedsheets. Speed, like Lincoln, had a certain absent-mindedness. In his later years, he was once so preoccupied with a business matter that he failed to recognize his wife on the street. Speed, like Lincoln, was a Whig and also fond of poetry. Speed may have introduced his friend to Lord Byron. He also went with Lincoln to Sunday receptions at Ninian Edwards' large mansion in Springfield, a place where Springfield's young men met Springfield's young women. Most historians believe Speed was Lincoln's only really intimate friend. Herndon didn't like this characterization. He dismissed any idea Speed had power over Lincoln, writing, quote, Lincoln never poured out his soul to any mortal creature at any time and on no subject. But surviving correspondence between the two men shows Lincoln revealing his inner feelings to Speed as he never did with other people. For all that, though, Speed left fewer stories of Lincoln than one might expect. He could be exceptionally vivid. When Speed recalled Lincoln walking into the general store for the first time, he talked about his saddlebags falling on the counter and described Lincoln's face like a camera zooming in. Speed later described Lincoln meeting a large group of visitors in the White House, turning his chair ever so slightly to make sure he looked at each and every one of them. But there are only a handful of these stories, and most take place in Springfield. And while Speed clearly admired his friend, he never seemed to understand what drove Lincoln or conveyed that he tried. That makes it hard to discover what existed in the two men that drew them to each other. But it's clear Lincoln felt comfortable enough with Speed to drop the jolly mask he often wore in public. This ease with Speed and Speed's abrupt invitation to his bed has led to speculation that Lincoln and Speed were lovers. The arguments often rely on a misunderstanding of sleeping arrangements in the 19th century. Beds were valuable commodities on the frontier, and often scarce. Lincoln would spend much of his legal career on the circuit, sharing beds with other lawyers in taverns and boarding houses, because there was no other choice. When he was in the White House, Lincoln publicly discussed sleeping with Speed, which historian David Herbert Donald said was evidence the relationship was platonic. Lincoln saw nothing to hide, as he might have had he pursued a sexual relationship with Speed in Victorian America. Donald also quotes historian and psychoanalyst Charles Strozier, who wrote that if Lincoln had been gay, he would have been, quote, torn between worlds, full of shame, confused, and hardly likely to end up in politics. Now, homosexuality and homosexual relationships certainly existed at this time. But as Joshua Schenck writes in Lincoln's Melancholy, this society had a different conception of these types of relationships. Affection between men was not in itself seen as a marker of sexuality. Many of Lincoln's male colleagues, including Stephen Douglas, formed deeply emotional bonds with other men in their youths, even as they pursued heterosexual relationships with women. Douglas, as a 16-year-old student, wrote in a copybook, quote, Pray, Tom, if you love me, say so, a feeling that does not seem to have been reciprocated. Schenck quotes the historian Carol Smith Rosenberg, 
who wrote, quote, The 20th century tendency to view love and sexuality within a dichotomized universe of deviance and normality, genital and platonic love, is alien to the emotions and attitudes of the 19th century. For men, the historian Anthony Rotundo has dubbed this romantic friendship, though Lincoln and Speed's relationship does not seem to have been as intense as others, probably because it started after these men's teen years. It's a good time, though, to point out that we know little about Lincoln's love life. Though bathroom jokes dominated his blue repertoire, Lincoln told jokes and stories about sex as well, sometimes casting himself as a protagonist. There's disagreement among historians about what these meant. Some think Lincoln was sexually active, seeing what Herndon referred to as, quote, bad women in the 1830s. Herndon claimed Speed helped Lincoln arrange a meeting with a prostitute in 1839. John Todd Stewart told Herndon that he and Lincoln and their company visited a brothel during the Black Hawk War, though he quickly added, quote, all went purely for fun, devilment, nothing else. Herndon also collected stories where Lincoln described himself on the Illinois circuit, sleeping in cramped quarters with farmers' daughters and putting his hands where they didn't belong. Two months before he died, Herndon told his longtime collaborator Jesse Wyke that Lincoln contracted syphilis from a woman in Beardstown, roughly 40 miles west of New Salem, sometime in 1835 or 1836. Herndon told Wyke that he feared the story might come out, be misstated, and suggested Abraham cheated on Mary Lincoln. Herndon said that Abraham was as true as steel to his wife. Lincoln the Lover is a possibility, and some historians, like Michael Burlingame, accept Lincoln's sexual activity as a fact. But we should keep a few other things in mind. As we've mentioned, the vast majority of people who knew Lincoln in his youth said he was very uncomfortable around women. Abner Ellis, his New Salem neighbor, said Lincoln had, quote, no desire for strange women, and remembered Lincoln avoiding a group of, quote, three stylish daughters from the state of Virginia when they shared a board. According to one story, Lincoln broke up a co-ed party in Springfield by yelling, Oh boys, look how clean these girls look. In an upcoming episode, we'll see some letters Lincoln wrote to Speed at a moment of personal crisis for both men. Lincoln's writings do not suggest experience, much less confidence, with sex. Most historians and medical professionals who've examined the record reject the idea Lincoln had syphilis. He never showed any of the symptoms of the tertiary stage of the disease, such as mental and muscle impairment, in the decades that followed the alleged transmission. Strozier, quoting medical expert Milton Schutz, suggests Lincoln had syphilophobia, defined in Merriam-Webster's dictionary as, quote, abnormal dread of syphilis or fear of being infected with it. Strozier writes, quote, in an age haunted by the widespread existence of syphilis, a lack of treatment for it, and the fear of it spread through incidental contact, together with 19th century cultural obsessions with the evils of masturbation, there are any number of possible psychosomatic reasons why a sexually naive man in his 20s might develop syphilophobia. Many of the stories Lincoln is said to have told about his sexual adventures follow a certain farmer's daughter story structure that could suggest he was simply sharing jokes he heard. In those stories, Lincoln depicted himself less as Casanova and more as Benny Hill, 
about to be chased off by some angry farmer. Other stories may have been self-deprecating attempts at humor. The story of Speed scheduling Lincoln a meeting with a prostitute ends with Lincoln being short of money and trying to work out a financial arrangement with the lady. Strozier has speculated the Ernest Herndon missed the jokes and assumed Lincoln was speaking frankly about his sexual life. I tend to think Lincoln was, at best, inexperienced with romantic relationships, as were many other young men on the frontier at this time. Whether or not he was a virgin, Lincoln was no great lover. He was definitely gripped by the uncertainty and self-doubt that hangs around most 20-somethings. This is clear in the one romantic relationship we know Lincoln pursued at this time. About a month after he rode into Springfield, Lincoln wrote a letter to a woman he knew in New Salem. He wrote, quote, This thing of living in Springfield is rather a dull business after all. At least it is so to me. I am quite as lonesome here as I ever was anywhere in my life. I have been spoken to by but one woman since I've been here, and should not have been by her if she could have avoided it. I've never been to church yet, nor probably shall not be soon. I stay away because I am conscious I should not know how to behave myself. Then, the letter takes a personal turn. Lincoln alludes to conversations about living in Springfield and tries to discourage his correspondent. It seems from what's being discussed that Lincoln made some kind of marriage proposal. He wrote, quote, For my part, I have already decided. What I have said, I will most positively abide by, provided you wish it. My opinion is that you had better not do it. You have not been accustomed to hardship, and it may be more severe than you now imagine. So, who was this woman that Lincoln was agonizing over? Her name was Mary Owens. The traditional Lincoln story, with its need to push women into specific roles, had a hard time with her. The Lincoln mythology usually treated Owens as a boring transitional figure between the sainted Anne Rutledge and the demonic Mary Todd. But the Lincoln-Owens relationship is fascinating on its own. It stands out from what might have happened with Rutledge and what did happen with Todd in that there's documentation. We know almost nothing for certain about Lincoln's relationship with Rutledge. And as we'll see, we know surprisingly little about how Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd ended up before a preacher. But we have both sides of the Lincoln-Owens courtship. There's an account from Lincoln himself, an exaggerated, mean-spirited account, but a narrative in his words. And we have Owen's memories, told in letters she wrote to Herndon in the 1860s. I can't say enough about Mary Owens as a writer. She was hesitant to talk about Lincoln at first, but grew increasingly confident and even funny toward the end. You can easily see Owen's bright and vivacious mind. And you can see why a man like Lincoln would be attracted to Owen's, and maybe, just maybe, insecure enough to be intimidated by her. At the start of 1837, Mary Owens was 28 years old, just a few months Lincoln's elder. She stood about five foot five and had blue eyes and long black curls running down her face. New Salemites who remembered Owens called her handsome, compared to Rutledge, who they described as pretty. But everyone agreed that Owens was attractive, smart, and witty. 
One of Lincoln's neighbors called Owens, quote, the most intellectual woman he had ever known. Another said, quote, None of the poets or romance writers have ever given to us a picture of a heroine so beautiful as good a description of Miss Owens in 1836 would be. Lincoln himself later wrote, quote, No woman that I have seen has a finer face. I also tried to convince myself that the mind was much more to be valued than the person, and in this, she was not inferior, as I could discover, to any with whom I had been acquainted. Owens, like Speed, came from a wealthy family in Kentucky and had gotten the level of formal education far beyond Lincoln's. She took classes in a convent in Nazareth, Kentucky, where she got an excellent grounding in English and grammar. Her letters have a wit and boldness that stands out among the New Salem Witnesses, most of whom wrote in a rough and primitive style. Burlingame quotes one letter Owens sent to another man in 1835, where she wrote, quote, You are well aware, Thomas, that in writing you this letter, I am transgressing the circumscribed limits laid down by tyrannical custom for our sex. And she went on, quote, If I am condemned by the cold, unfeeling, and fastidious of either sex, I care not, for I trust my heart has learned to rise superior to those groveling feelings dictated by bosoms that are callous to every refined emotion. Owens wasn't just writing this before women had the right to vote. She sent it 13 years before the first women's rights convention convened. But if education uplifted Mary, it also isolated her. Her sister Nancy later wrote, quote, My sister was a young lady of beauty and intelligence and much vivacity, and had many admirers, especially gentlemen. She had many offers of marriage from the best young men of her acquaintance, who, strange to say, always parted with her in friendship and continued friendly with her afterwards. Owens first entered Lincoln's life in 1833, when she visited her sister Elizabeth Abel, the wife of the local doctor in New Salem. We've met Elizabeth Abel before as one of the witnesses to Lincoln's breakdown after Anne Rutledge's death. Lincoln was friendly with the Abels. Elizabeth had done some sewing for him to protect his pants from wear during his surveying career. Lincoln probably met Owens during her four-week stay. Most accounts suggest that Abel tried to play matchmaker, and there seems to have been some mutual interest. Lincoln throughout his life appears to have been attracted to educated, intelligent women. Owens, in turn, appears to have found something compelling in him. Her son Benjamin later claimed that after Owens left for Kentucky, Lincoln said he would marry her if she ever returned to Illinois. Owens heard this and three years later decided to go back, perhaps to test Lincoln's feelings. Benjamin wrote, quote, She left her Kentucky home with a predetermination to show him, if she met him, that she was not to be caught simply by the asking. The courtship appears to have taken place in walks and social events in and around New Salem. Caleb Carman would later say that Lincoln would, quote, gallant her down the river. But there was tension from the start. Lincoln later claimed that Owens was different from what he remembered. He wrote, quote, Now, when I beheld her, I could not for my life avoid thinking of my mother, and this, not from withered features, for her skin was too full of fat to permit its contracting into wrinkles, but from her want of teeth, weather-beaten appearance in general, and from a kind of notion that ran in my head, 
that nothing could have commenced at the size of infancy and reached her present bulk in less than 35 or 40 years. And in short, I was not at all pleased with her. This is a vicious and immature description, suggesting a deep insecurity on Lincoln's part. Owens weighed 150 pounds, perfectly normal for her height. And Lincoln wrote a sad and almost pleading letter to Owens when he arrived in Vandalia for the 1836 legislative session, which didn't suggest Lincoln had doubts about her. For her part, Owens expected more polished manners than Lincoln commanded. In one story, Lincoln and Owens were part of a group riding on horseback. When they came to a rough creek, the men helped the ladies over the water. Lincoln just rode on. Owens later wrote, quote, When I rode up beside him, I remarked, You are a nice fellow. I suppose you did not care whether my neck was broken or not. He laughingly replied, I suppose by way of compliment, that he knew I was plenty smart to take care of myself. In another incident, Lincoln and Owens walked with Bowling Green's wife, Nancy, who was trying to carry her small child with her. They had to go up a very steep embankment to visit Elizabeth Abel, as Nancy struggled with her cranky child. Lincoln appeared oblivious to Nancy's exertions, and when they finally arrived, Owens, perhaps teasing Lincoln, said, quote, You would not make a good husband. This sparked some argument between the two of them. The core problems appear to have been their different backgrounds and Lincoln's fears about supporting a wife. This was a common anxiety among young men. Historian Jean Baker, in her biography of Mary Lincoln, notes that middle-class men of the time were discouraged from marrying until they could provide. She quotes a theological student who wrote to his girlfriend that he lacked, quote, the means of making such provisions for your ease as you ought to receive. As much as I love you, I cannot think of your giving yourself to me unless you can rationally promise yourself that you shall, by such a step, increase your own felicity. As one of Lincoln's neighbors, Johnson Gaines Green, wrote, quote, Lincoln thought that as he was extremely poor and Miss Owens very rich, that it was a fling on him on that account. This was, at that time, Abe's tender spot. Owens later wrote that, quote, His training had been different than mine, Hence, there was not that congeniality which would otherwise have existed. In one passage that has been quoted in nearly every Lincoln biography, Owens wrote, quote, I did on one occasion say to my sister, who was very anxious for us to be married, that I thought Mr. Lincoln was deficient in those little links which make up the great chain of woman's happiness. At least it was so in my case. Owens apparently visited Lincoln in Springfield in August because he wrote a letter to her the same day she left. He suggested he was still willing to marry her. Lincoln wrote, quote, If you feel yourself in any degree bound to me, I am now willing to release you, provided you wish it. While, on the other hand, I am willing, and even anxious to bind you faster, if I can be convinced that it will, in any considerable degree, add to your happiness. This, indeed, is the whole question with me. Nothing would make me more miserable than to believe you miserable. Nothing more happy than to know you were so. So Lincoln was honoring a commitment he made, or thought he made, while giving Owens an exit, and perhaps encouraging her to take it. Owens either did not respond to this letter, or simply turned Lincoln down, which appears to have genuinely distressed him. 
In his letter describing the courtship, he admitted Owen's rejection, quote, mortified him, and concluded, quote, I have now come to the conclusion never again to think of marrying, and for this reason, I can never be satisfied with anyone who would be blockhead enough to have me. Mary Owens later married a man named Jesse Vineyard and moved to Missouri. She had five children. Two of her sons fought for the Confederacy. As to Lincoln, her son later wrote that his mother, quote, always referred to him as a man with a heart full of human kindness and a head full of common sense. Though short-lived, the relationship is revealing. Lincoln's insecurity is striking. His fears about being a provider are understandable. But we see more of Lincoln's embarrassment about his origins than normal. He had struggled to better himself and keep away from Thomas Lincoln's farm, and yet he remained anxious about his rustic origins. At age 28, he projected a swagger which extended to his personal, professional, and political lives. But this was another mask, concealing Lincoln's well of fears. As Owens wrote, quote, The last message I ever received from him was about a year after we parted in Illinois. Mrs. Abel visited Kentucky, and he said to her in Springfield, Tell your sister that I think she was a great fool, because she did not stay here and marry me. Characteristic of the man. Next time, we'll look at Lincoln's law partnership with John Todd Stewart and its interaction with the politics of the late 1830s. We'll also look at Lincoln's own political career during this period, as he fought to hold on to his earlier achievements in the legislature and began tenuously addressing larger issues of law, democracy, and race.